Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. I'd like to tell you about John Updike. A few have probably pondered the American social psyche like John Updike. For 30 years, Updike has been chronicling contemporary American life, and he's done so in fiction. And in so doing, he has been helping us uh, as best he can to see ourselves. And what Updike in his different novels mirrors back to us from time to time is an America that he sees, but the America that he sees is an America over the last 30 years that has lost heart and that is spiritually adrift. Updike is famous for four volumes that he wrote over the last 30 years. They're called the Rabbit Book Series. I don't know if any of you have read them. They're about contemporary American life. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes uh, for his writings. And at the heart of this Rabbit Series is a fictional contemporary American whose name is Harry Rabbit Angstrom. And this series chronicles the life of Harry Rabbit Angstrom, and as it does so, it helps us as Americans see who we are through his life. Because he reflects back to us an American lifestyle that's lived at a frantic pace, but oftentimes without meaning. And for many Americans, and a growing number of Americans, a life without any real sense of fulfillment within it. Listen to these quotes about Rabbit Angstrom. Rabbit Angstrom can't get enough. He eats, he drinks, he swaps wives, or more accurately, lets his wife swap him. He gets rich, and then he retires to Valhalla Village, and still he remains incomplete and searching. Somewhere behind all this, he insists to himself privately, there's something that wants me to find it. Have you heard that out there? I've heard so many men say that. Whatever that something is, God or simply the happiness that we Americans claim is our birthright, it's out there, but it bobs and it shimmers beyond Harry's grasp. Nothing rabbit does, nothing rabbit experiences is quite enough. You see, Harry's condition is much like the average American's life. It's basically a life that's anxious today. Uh, somewhat adrift, feeling a sense of lostness and certainly feeling a sense that with all that we have, we haven't arrived. Could that be your experience here this morning? Displayed in Harry is a spiritual emptiness which Updike sees as the center of American life today. You see, Harry Rabbit Angstrom is a hollow-at-the-core character type. He's got a big vacuum there. He can't seem to fill it. And so I'm quoting again, Harry runs. He runs to lovers. He runs to Florida as urgently as the 19th century homesteaders move west in their Conestoga wagons. He runs as, re as relentlessly as today's baby boomer, scaling their corporate organizational charts, but to no avail, the last moments of Harry's life, and he dies of a massive heart attack at 45 in the series. He never seems to have arrived. And the path behind him is strewn with emotional wreckage. This is the contemporary American story. And through Harry Rabbit Angstrom, 
What Updike reveals is an America today that's frustrated by its dreams. Frustrated in its direction and searching for what? The terror is it doesn't know. We don't know what is. And you know, when you open up Luke chapter 6, you enter a first century that is exactly in the same state of affairs. I am constantly amazed at the similarities between the first century and the 20th century. Some exact parallels where the world was and what the world was experiencing. The same frustration, the same anxiety, the same sense of lostness that blankets our world today in an increasing fashion blanketed the first century world. For instance, Roman pragmatism that had replaced Greek ideologies had slowly reduced life to a mechanical kind of existence, a vain kind of treadmill type feeling for Romans and those that they conquered. The Greek gods of the past had been declared irrelevant. Caesar was now God. In other words, man was all there was. Man was God. Life had collapsed into the black hole of pleasure and power seeking, which provided for a time a momentary numbness for an otherwise meaningless existence to nowhere. And as you follow the life of the Roman Empire, over time, vices, not virtues, begin to rule that empire, leaving its citizens ravaged and empty and hollow and searching for what? They had it all. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, prosperity for all. A tremendous lifestyle never before seen. And yet you read the writings of the first century Roman authors and the people of the Roman Empire were haunted by a desperate search for what? I can think of only one good thing to come out of these two similar, very dehumanizing periods of time, the first and the 20th century. And that is, in such times, people who are hurt and empty, people who are wandering and lost, people who have kind of burned out on secular offerings, they're open to new ideas. They're open to radical paradigms. They're open to changing their way of thinking, and that's good. Maybe you wonder why Jesus was such an instant hit in the first century. Such a sensation. I mean, we've gone from chapter 1 now to chapter 6, and He has followers, people gathering around Him all over Israel. And as His disciples move out, they didn't find an audience that wasn't interested. They, find, they found hollow people in Athens, in Rome, in Ephesus, in Corinth, who were hungry to hear somebody say something meaningful and transcendent above themselves. Desperately hungry. And so Jesus was an instant hit. But I want you to hear it today. And this is not what the church, unfortunately, has been pre presenting for the last 20 years. His message was not a soft-pedaled message. His message was not, I'm going to give it to you and give you a lot of it. His message was a radical message. His message was a radical message for the difficult what question in an age of radical emptiness. Now we're going to look at that message in just a moment, but as I said, Jesus was a tremendous hit. He had all kinds of people following Him, and in that great following now that was tremendously large, He faced what every leader has to face in a growing enterprise, and that is 
the terror of delegation. Some of you guys, some of you gals have been in situations that have grown and suddenly it's gone beyond you and you've got to give it to somebody else to help you do it. But that is a scary thing because who are you going to give it to who's going to love it like you do? And that's where we are when we pick up in verse 12. Jesus is being forced to think about who He would entrust His expanding ministry to. Let me read it for you. Verse 12, it says, And it was at this time, literally, and it was in these particular days, because there's a crisis going on, that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Interestingly, when it says He spent the whole night in prayer, it uses a term not used anywhere else in the New Testament, this whole night, this vigilance that He was giving to contemplating who He would choose. In fact, it's the only time this is used of Jesus. It's the only time we know of that He spent the whole night in prayer. Even at Gethsemane, He only spent part of the night. But here He spends all night. This is a critical moment in this expanding ministry. And once again, in this verse, verse 12, we see humanity at its best. Because what we see here is a man, not God. Let me ask the question to help bring you into this with me. Do you think, and by the way, Jesus had hundreds of disciples around Him now. Hundreds of them. But He's got to entrust it to some of them. Do you think Jesus knew who to choose? Do you think He had it figured out? He could look in their eyes and say, this is the guy I want. You see, if we read the New Testament correctly, in coming to earth, He had left, He had emptied of Himself of His, his, his uh, attributes, certain attributes that would give Him the ability to see through things. He confined Himself for the purpose of being a man so that we might have an example that we could strive for. Otherwise, He's a model we can't live up to. But in this moment, with all these people, as He looked at their faces and wondered who would be the ones, rather than just making a decision, He went to His Father in an all-night vigil. Not the speaking kind of prayer that so many of us are used to, but the listening kind of prayer, the contemplative kind of prayer. And I can only imagine Jesus there on that lonely mountain thinking of all these people. And here's where I want to bring you into it. Imagine Him there bringing these names up of these different disciples. Listening. Whether God would single out this man or that man for this new commissioning that He was about to send them on. Is it Lucius? Is it Erastus? Can you see Jesus doing that? Listening for an answer. Maybe hearing, is it Demas? Maybe hearing a no. But every once in a while, coming upon a disciple that Jesus Himself maybe had a particular natural kinship with. Is it Jason? And hearing the Father say, no, it's not Jason. And can you imagine Jesus in His humanity with the Father saying, but Jason is so articulate. Jason can so envision what I'm about to do. Why not him? And yet hearing from the Father, no. Maybe he said, Joseph. And he heard, no. And he said, but Joseph has so many connections to the religious leaders. And having the Father still say no. And then every once in a while, as he struggled through his disappointments over people that in his flesh he might like to have had on his side, bringing up some like Peter, who he wasn't particularly necessarily wanting, and hearing the Father say, surprisingly, that's the one I want. Can you imagine what the struggle might have been? Are you sure you want Peter? Huh? You really sure? 
And all night that went, I believe, until morning, but at morning he had finally come to twelve, the twelve who were before us. And it says that he called his disciples up to him, he's on the mountain, and he chose twelve of them and he named them apostles. He set them apart. Pa apostle means one who sent. He's commissioned for a specific mission. And here they are, Simon, who is also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Now I want you to know, I am sure when Jesus came off that mountain as day broke, and He called these twelve up to Him, and all those hundreds of other disciples stood there and watched these guys get selected, I'm sure that they had some murmuring going on in the crowd. Can you imagine standing there and not being chosen? Seeing this guy next to you that you're better looking than, that you're smarter than, that you're quicker than, go up on the mountain to be named an apostle? I'm some, sure that there were some who felt more credentialed, more wealthy, uh, more in key social position. They could do more for Jesus. They had more outward charm, and yet Jesus selected for His inner circle seven fishermen, one IRS agent, okay? <laughs> one terrorist. You see him there? He's called, in verse 15, Simon the Zealot. That word zealot comes from a group, the zealots, who were terrorists in Israel in this time. They assassinated people. They assassinated Roman judges and leaders and ultimately led the rebellion against Rome that <coughs> led to Israel being wiped out in the first century. And then three others whose professions we don't know. How was Jesus led to those people? Well, He was led to those people to pick those ordinary men only in one way. He sat before an invisible Father and prayed to Him and listened and contemplated because only the Father, not Jesus, could see in these ordinary men the extraordinary seeds of character that would blossom later on. That's how He learned to delegate. Now let's make three quick observations here that you might just jot down for applications. First of all this, Jesus was always a proactive prayer. He prayed proactively, not on the back end, on the front end. He was always on the front end of critical moments, and it demonstrated that He was a man in submission to God. I'm sure, as I've said, Jesus struggled with some of the men that God revealed to him would be his apostles. I'm sure there were some surprises and disappointments along the way. But proactive prayer irons out those struggles beforehand, before you go into battle. It's not those reactive prayers that I'm so accustomed to in the midst of the ship going down because I didn't think about it on the front end. Help! Are you facing a major decision? There's some major change in your life, business-wise? Major move? Major purchase? Have you prayed about it? Have you listened? Do you have God's peace? Do you know God's will? That's the example He's setting for us here. Humanity at its best. Second observation, prayer gave Jesus what it should give us. See, He was a man. It gave Him clarity and confidence and decisiveness for a critical moment. 
These are faith steps. They're always faith steps. When we hire somebody, it's a faith step. When we move into the community, it's a faith step. But I'm so glad to be a part of elders who every Friday at 6.30, we pray. We ask God's direction. We listen. We contemplate. We think. It's an important part of the Christian life. You can't do like the fast food restaurants, just drive up. You know, we got, most of us are too accustomed to drive-in prayers. You know, you pull down the electric window, push the button, and the person says, can I help you? And you say, yeah, I want you to tell me who to marry. I need some extra cash. I need to get out of the struggle I'm in. Can you help me? You know, you know, go to the drive through window. Pick it up. Go get it. It doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. It requires us sitting and thinking and struggling and wrestling so that out of that time we can be decisive and confident because even in answered prayer, the road before us is difficult. There's a third observation. It's the most haunting one for me as I went through this passage. It was this. Imagine, I imagine myself this week in that band of followers and Jesus decides to, send to ascend to the mountain to pray. And here's the question that kept coming back to me over and over. In the quietness of that moment as Jesus was lifting up those names, if I had been there and He were to say, is it Robert? Is it? What would God have looked into my heart and seen? What would Jesus hear back? Yes? No. Well, let's read verse 17. I'd like to stay there for a moment, but we can't. Verse 17. It says that in the morning He descended with these apostles and he stood on a level place. Now immediately after he called these men up to him, they descended together in verse 17 it says, and stood on a level place with the people. This is, don't, let's don't run by this for just a second. You might underline the words descended and level place. I think it's a picture worth a thousand words. I don't think the apostles necessarily, necessarily understood it at this moment. But I think Jesus did something that uh, visualized for these men what he was really calling them to. Now watch. He was not calling them to an ivory tower position of spiritual rank above the people. You know, where they stood on the mountain, kind of like a person who just won the Olympics. He's a gold medal winner. He's up on the platform and, and all the losers are down there. You know, we made it. You didn't. He's also not setting these guys apart, you know, like some dispassionate elitist. Like they have something that these people don't which is oftentimes, unfortunately, the church's position when it walls itself off and commends itself rather than being with people on a level place on their terms. Do you hear me? What he did was, the minute those guys got to him, he turned around and walked down to the people and stood on a level place, eyeball to eyeball, and there was a message in that. And the message was this, that just like His heavenly Father had asked Him to descend and serve, that's really what apostleship was all about. Descending and serving. I mention that because this is a powerful antidote to the curse of our world today. Picture Jesus and those men descending. And when they went down, they began to minister to all those people. Notice in 18 it says, they came to hear Him, they were healed of their diseases, those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the multitudes were trying to touch Him. 
for power was coming from him and healing them all. He met all their needs, regardless of what, what motive they came. He was there for them. To st he was at a starting place with them, every one of them. Even when they had unrealistic expectations or selfish motives, Jesus was there to start with them. And I want to commend to you that this is the antidote to our failing, increasingly despondent American culture. It's an antidote that most Americans don't want to drink because they're afraid it will kill them. They are. So they run to every vain thing imaginable, like Harry Rabbit Angstrom, and it kills them. And it leaves them lifeless and empty. Life becomes empty, meaningless, because it is so full of self and that aloofness on the mountain, independent. You hear that word all the time. And arrogance. The path to meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment to a rich and vibrant life, which seems so elusive for Americans today, is right here on this page. It's right here. And here it is, summarized in three words. It's Jesus... It's a descent. It's a level place to serve. And yet that scares us to death. It's an antidote that people want to run from because they think it won't give life. But it will. This place, this level place, you mark it down. It's the place of meaning in life. A full, rich life. In verse 17, there is recorded for us three groups of people. I've got them listed in the chart on your outline at this level place. I imagine kind of three concentric circles as Jesus descended to these people. There was Jesus in the center. There's the apostles in the first circle. There are the disciples in the second circle. And there's a multitude of people in the third circle. And you'll notice they came from all over the place. Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon. It even mentions the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And when I saw that, my mind immediately flashed back to 1968, the summer of 68. I was in Southern California walking down a beach with a hundred other Campus Crusade staff, students' staff. And we were walking along just talking to the surfers and the sunbathers, telling them that there was going to be a concert at the pier in about 30 minutes. And I can remember after that 30 minutes, there I stood and there was a small contemporary Christian group called Love Song. I wish you could have heard them that day. It was the most magical electric moment. It was the 60s. Everybody with long hair, you know, the love beads, the tie-dye t-shirts, the surfers, the joints and everything. Everybody was standing around. But it was a lost, searching generation. And in the background, you could hear Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. And that's exactly what they couldn't get. And then all of a sudden, love songs started playing. And it got real quiet. They just had guitars, mandolin. And all these people listened, and then Chuck Smith stood up, who's now the famous pastor of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, and just gave a brief gospel message. And to see the thousands respond, go right into the ocean to be baptized. It was a moment I'll cherish my whole life. I wish you could have been there. It was magical. That's what I imagine here. But now imagining that crowd, here's what I want you to imagine with me for a moment. You're in the crowd. What circle are you in? Look at the chart here for just a second and I'll help you kind of identify yourself. Three crowd types, the multitudes, the disciples, the apostles. The multitudes characterized as seekers. The disciples as learners. The apostles, we call them sent ones. And I'm not going to use now apostle in the grand twelve apostles, which we can't replicate. But apostle is one sent with a mission, which we can replicate. Generally speaking, we can all be apostles 
when we know the mission God has for us. But here are these three groups. The desire of their heart, what was it? For the multitudes, it was to be helped. They just wanted help. For the disciples, they wanted to learn so they could adhere. For the apostles, they wanted something more than that. Yeah, they wanted to learn and hear, but primarily they wanted to join. To join. For the multitudes, their chief concern, and you can put this in all capital letters, was M-E, me. That's their chief concern. they got problems. They need help. They need somebody to take care of them. And as it says in Jesus' response, to heal them. They wanted to get well. But the disciples had a different concern. Maybe with a capital M and a small E. It was me and Jesus. They wanted to get strong. But the apostles went even deeper. You might put me in just little letters. It was me and Jesus and the mission. And though they certainly wanted to get well, and though by being with them they were getting strong, their real heart's desire was to get with it. To make a difference. So Jesus responded. Remember, He's the compassionate Lord. He responds to wherever you start. You're in a process. If you need help today, Jesus wants to give help. He wants to heal. If you want to learn, He'll teach. But He also wants to call. Now, if you look at the relationship to Jesus, because some of us can get stuck in these crowd types for a lifetime. It's sad when somebody who's in the multitude stays in the multitude and his relationship to Jesus is always a crisis relationship, just a Savior. He never gets beyond the Savior syndrome. Just goes out and messes up his life, runs back for getting help. Goes out and messes up his life and runs back to get help. And he stays there. It's okay to be there, just don't stay there. Then there's the disciples. And their relationship to Jesus was close. They wanted to be a friend. They needed a friend. But you know, discipleship runs out at some point. There comes a place where you've got to move even beyond that. And the apostles were the ones who were going to do that, at least at the first. Their relationship with Jesus was intimate. He had become Lord. Now our church has ways of meeting all three. That's what's listed to the right. We won't talk about that, but I just want you to see... Those are the three. And He met all their needs. But now having said this, and having you picture yourself in the crowd, I want you mentally, not with a pen or a pencil, just to look at those crowd types, and you ask yourself this question. Where am I? Which circle am I in? And then maybe more importantly, which is a question that was asked me years ago when I sat out in the audience and someone else was speaking, and he was a lot better, by the way, but I was sitting out there and he was talking about following Christ and mentioning these same things. But he asked a bigger question I'm going to ask you. And I felt my heart go like that. And it was this question. If you had blue sky and could choose any of these, where would you want to be? Which part of the circle of Christ would you want to be in? That is such an important question. And I want you to know, no matter where you are, if ultimately your goal is just to get well and that's all that is, that's not enough. If it's just to get strong, that's not enough. Somewhere, if you're going to find what Harry, Rabbit, Angstrom didn't, you've got to move to the bottom, into intimacy, into lordship, into mission. It's the bottom circle that answers the what question.
You know, Abraham was a sent one. We read about him, the patriarch. It wasn't an easy life that he had when God called him to do the things that he, that he did, but it was exciting. It was thrilling. He saw great things. There was intimacy with his God. And you know what it says in Genesis 47 when Abraham died? It says, and Abraham died of a ripe old age. And then it adds, satisfied with life. Contrast that to Harry and to so many others who end up a large portion of their life brooding it away because it doesn't mean anything. These are deep questions, but you see, it's a radical time we're in. I hope you're feeling that. It requires a radical message, and here it is. And let me read it to you, because now Jesus turns to these people and He preaches. And He says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. That's a radical message. And I've visualized it for you on your outline, kind of like a, one of those psychological tests that have the different polarities, you know, disciplined, impulsive, those kind of things. Well, I've listed that in a graph so you can visualize it and get your arms around it. But here's what I want you to know from the outset. Somewhere on that graph, in each one of those four categories, that's where you live. You're there. You live there every day. Somewhere on that graph. This graph is a radical draft because it, it, it communicates some unusual contrasting comparisons. The blessings in verses 20 and 23 are pitted against the woes. There's a correlation between each one, rich and poor, hungry and well-fed. What's clearly odd is that what should be a blessing, if you'll notice, is a woe though, right? And what is a woe is a blessing. And what Jesus is doing in this meaningless age is setting forth two radical paradigms for living life. The first one at the top seems radical. The second one reasonable. Who wants at the top to be poor and hungry and weepy? Who wants that? Well, none of us do. But we like the seductiveness of being rich and well-fed and happy and in the crowd. There they are. Well, if you stopped right now, I sure, I'm sure I would leave hundreds of you saying, well, what does it mean? <laughs> and we could spend weeks talking about what it means, but I'm going to condense as much as I can to help you at least start your journey because each one of these is the key to meaning in your life. Let's start with the first one where it says, blessed are you who are poor, and contrast that to woe to you who are rich. Now, at first, that might seem to make poverty a virtue and wealth a curse, but when we go to the Gospel of Matthew, he adds two little words that help us see that he is not talking here, as he would probably follow up in a later discussion, about social status. 
He's talking about personal attitudes. That's why we call these the Beatitudes. They're attitudes. And so in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus speaks, He says, Blessed are you who are poor, and then He adds two words, in spirit. See, He's talking about an internal attitude that's going on here. Small in spirit is what it literally says. And I would like to paraphrase it so you can get a grasp on it this way. Blessed are you who are at the end of yourself. And woe to you who are full of yourself. Do you remember Narcissus in your Greek mythology? Narcissus was a strikingly handsome personality. He was the envy of all the ladies of his day and the heartthrob of those young ladies who would all like to have him as their suitor. But Narcissus could not commit to any of them for he already had a very jealous lover. And that lover came about the day he was at a small still pond and he looked into the waters, those calm waters, saw himself. And he fell so madly in love with himself and his self-love so consumed him that he had no room or anyone else, or any other commitments. Does that tell you something about where we are today? Does that sound like things you see on TV each night? Certainly, this is the American dream. Narcissus. But it's an empty dream that allows for no room for anyone else. And if you'll notice what it says in verse 20, there's no room for the kingdom of God either. But blessed are you, when you come to the end of yourself, because there is room. And yet that goes so counter against our age. To disbelieve in self. To renounce self. To turn away from self. I remember when I preached a message like this in Tucson, Arizona years ago, there was a young man who was visiting our church that day who was a very prominent physician. And he got so angry at this point because he was so proud of himself. This goes counter to our age. But the more there is of self, the less there is of the kingdom of God. It was self that Harry Rabbit Angstrom could not relinquish in his search for meaning, and so he never found it. And neither will you. Jesus said of Himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. Humanity at its best. Secondly, blessed are you who hunger. Woe to you who are well fed. What does that mean? Well, the hunger that Matthew's Gospel tells us is being referred to here is the hunger for true righteousness. The man who's poor in spirit, the man who knows he's at the end of himself, knows he can't produce a true integrity in his life. It's beyond him. That's, that's his heartbreak. It's beyond him to really live a consistent life. On the other hand, one who is rich in himself is always satisfied that he's good enough. And he spends a lot of time telling everybody that he is. And always justifying his actions. Never wanting to admit he's wrong. That's why in Gallup poll, they'll say, do you believe in heaven or hell? And everybody believes in heaven and hell today. All, most, the majority of Americans believe in heaven and hell, believe it or not. But 90% of those Americans, really 98%, all think they're going to heaven. And how do they think that? With the wreckage that is in most of their lives. Because they spend an inordinate amount of energy always saying, I'm okay. I'm as good as anybody else. You know, justifying. There's no uglier person than the person who wastes his time always trying to justify himself when it keeps him from satisfaction. Real satisfaction. 
I might paraphrase it this way. Blessed are you who hunger for real integrity. You'll be satisfied. But woe to you who rest on your own laurels. For in time, your sin, your personal hypocrisy, and the scandals that are constantly breaking out in your life will mock your self-righteousness as a sham. And you know it. My wife remembers well the argument my older brother and I had around God judging us. And he got so angry, he got up and slammed down his fork and left the table. Because his aim in life was to be justified in his lifestyle. And he spent thousands of dollars going to counselors and psychiatrists seeking a justification of a lifestyle that cannot be justified trying to prove worth out of something that was unworthy. And so many of us do the same thing, and it's such a waste because it keeps us from real satisfaction. Thirdly, blessed are you who weep. Woe to you who laugh. Now this is not a call to morbidity in life. Maybe it should be said this way to help us. Blessed are you who take life seriously. And here's how I come to that conclusion. Because life is serious, but we live in a Disneyland America. Our kids do, and they don't understand that life has consequences. Blessed are you who weep, who grieve over your failures and sin, who grieve over your broken promises, who sorrow over your lack of discipline, the fact that you gave in to lust, again, your hypocrisy, and what you don't have. You grieve over it. Life has grief to it, and grief can be real healthy. Because if you grieve, you're in a process of getting to a place where you can enjoy life. But woe to you who laugh life off, like so many do. Who think integrity is no big deal. That think you can indulge your lust with no consequences. Who think you can live 80 years of adolescence. That life is filled with nothing more than insatiable wants that you can chase after. That commitments are no big deal and neither is your word. Woe to you who laugh life off. Notice what it says. For there'll be tears. And there'll be mourning. And there'll be regrets. Many Americans fit here in Woville. They live there. Because they don't believe this radical paradigm that Jesus is setting forth in a radical time of people's search for meaning. Fourthly, blessed are those who are hated on account of the Son of Man. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. There's the last polarity here. It talks about an inward integrity rather than a call to external yielding to things, to be led by the external, the culture, the peer group, the desire to fit in, to feel like everybody else. Jesus is not going to lead you that way. It's not necessarily He's going to make you a fool, but He's not going to lead you into the culture but out of it. And He says as He calls people to discipleship, don't think the Son of Man came to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. For he who loves father or mother or brother or sister or husband or wife more than me is not worthy of me. That's radical. That's a real call. Paraphrase, blessed are you when I am more important than your family and your friends and your culture. But woe to you when your family and your friends and your culture are more important than me. Do you hear the message? Is it not radical? 
So where are you? Look at the graph. Chart your own psychological attitudinal scale there. On each of those polarities, where would you put yourself? It's real important that you know where you are. Are you rich or poor? You hungry or well-fed, weeping or laughing? Where are you? Many Christians have not entered into the full Christian life. They're not even close for one reason only. They've accepted Jesus. They listen to Jesus. But their X's are all down at the bottom of the psychological test. Because they're still chasing, and this is what the bottom in 20th century terms is, where it says, woe to you, you might even write it down. At the bottom, and this is hard for us to hear today, at the bottom, you can translate woe to you because what the bottom is, is the American dream. That's what it is. That has now turned to an empty nightmare. Full of myself. That's Americans. Self-righteous. Their way is as good as any way. Laughing their way through life, thinking, I can cover it with something. Condom or whatever else, it'll cover it. It won't. And thinking, I'm just going to be part of this pluralism because we're all the same. We're not. The American dream. And yet, the top one is very radical. And at the top stands an incredible person, Jesus Christ, countering what we believe and what we are pulled to and what we've known for years, He wipes it all away and says, this is the totally wrong way of thinking. And it's where our troubles really are. They're all in attitudes. And now we're in an election year and we're going to be electing a president, congressional members, and all kinds of other political figures. And we have this uneasiness because we're not sure we're going to like what we get. But the problem is, they're all symbols of us. They're us. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our politicians. It's in ourselves. And that's what he's saying. The biggest vote you can ever cast is today. Not for a politician. It's today. Who is going to lead you through life? That's the question. Is it going to be yourself? Is it going to be your culture? Or is it going to be Jesus Christ? Harry Rabbit Angstrom thought it was himself, and he died. Many of us think it's our culture, but T.S. Eliot has put it so well. He said, all of our knowledge has brought us to ignorance. All of our ignorance has brought us to death. Nearer to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life in the living? In the rubble of the American dream stands a powerful, towering figure a proven leader, not one you hope is going to be your leader, but a proven leader throughout the ages. No matter what people think about the church, and the church has made a lot of mistakes, no matter what people think about Christians and church leaders, and they've made horrendous mistakes, if you go back through the centuries, from philosophers to secularists to historians, whoever it is, no one can find fault in Jesus Christ, and no one does. And there He stands. It's not just the message that He preaches. He stands before you and says, I, I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. Wherever you are in the crowd, 
wherever you are on the scale. The last question is, who is going to lead you through life? May I commend to you Jesus Christ? If you're in the multitudes, Jesus Christ will meet you and help you. If you're a disciple who's stuck and your Christian life is kind of flamed out, can I commend to you Jesus Christ? Don't live that life without meeting this man. He is still Savior and Lord, even in the 20th century. Let's pray together. And as we close, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and I hope no one leaves at this moment, but let me just ask you to think about where you are, and if you don't know Jesus Christ, would you open up your heart and believe on Him? Would you ask Him to come in? Maybe this morning as we talk, you say, I'm at the end of myself. Trust me, Jesus Christ can give you a kingdom. You might be at a place where you're mourning because of all the wreckage that's in your life. Jesus Christ can not only forgive that, He can heal that. He can give you a cause worth living for. Would you invite Him in this moment? Just pray, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to know how to really live. This is a commitment for a lifetime. It'll take a lifetime to understand, but I'm willing to do it. If you hunger and thirst for that, you'll be satisfied. If that's the goal of your life, He will meet you. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.